On the news last night after President Joe Biden signed a bill that was passed by Congress to set aside Juneteenth or June 19th as a federal holiday, there were video clips from the National Archives of the 1963 Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. NBC correspondent Martin Savage chose to focus on that part of the speech dealing with the patriotic song America the Beautiful. Professor Jonathan Reeder of Columbia University explains that during the speech, Dr. King envisioned blacks crossing over to sing that national song. He could divine the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. Dr. King's phrase, with new meaning, was an understatement. It wasn't really clear whether black people had been able to sing America at all. Professor Reeder continues, King's sermon at the March on Washington offered solace for long-standing wounds. Singing America would reconcile those black exiles, at least musically, with the country that had denied them maternal care. This hymn of inclusion repeated itself in King's prophecy of a nation ringing the chimes of freedom together. Let freedom ring. From the snow-capped Rockies, from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, even from every mole hill in Mississippi. But King didn't end I Have a Dream, his speech, with black voices gaining entree to the song America the Beautiful, Reversing the direction of the crossing over, King called upon whites to sing the black spiritual free at last. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Dr. King had heard that same song in 1957 when he attended Kwame Nkrumah's installation as the first president of the newly freed nation of Ghana. Being in Africa stirred up the most primal feelings in Dr. King, linking him with present-day Africans and his own enslaved ancestors. As he strolled through Accra, he wept with joy as young and old Ghanaians called out, Freedom! And then he heard an inner voice, and I could hear that old Negro spiritual once more crying out, Free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, I'm free at last. At the March on Washington, as Dr. King approached the climax of his speech, that same song welled up in him, but with a difference. In Accra, the voice spoke to King in a moment of private black communion. On the mall, King envisioned a choir in which all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the spiritual, free at last, free at last. That day in Washington, Dr. King's next move was to ask 
whites to speak as Negroes in a universal black we, to merge their voices with the slaves. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. In that brilliant flash of preaching, King made white people experience bondage and deliverance. This was a gift of grace. He had invited whites to adopt the slave ancestors as their own. Words of Jonathan Reeder, professor of sociology at Barnard College, in his essay, Songs of the Slaves, the music of MLK's I Have a Dream, in The New Yorker in 2013. Melody Carter Shaw has been trying earnestly to imagine just what it might have felt like on June 19, 1865, when those enslaved in Galveston, Texas, finally got the news that they were free, free at last. Carter Shaw is president of the Lycoming Tri-County NAACP based in Williamsport, and the organization will present a regional Juneteenth observance tomorrow, hoping to provide an opportunity for the region to gather. Celebrating who we are, that's the title of the event. WVIA's Fiona Powell had a chance to speak by phone with Melody Carter Shaw to learn more. We are pretty broad. It's Tri-County, and those counties include Lycoming, which is by far the largest, Union, and Clinton, and Northumberland as well. We have had several people reach out from, from other localities that don't have a chapter close to them, and they've kind of adopted us. How long has the Lycoming Tri-County NAACP been going? Well, truth be told, it's been trying to re-emerge for some time over the years, and it's been largely unsuccessful until last year. Last year, I guess after all the racial unrest and all the things that were transpiring in our country at the time, it just seemed like a re-emergence of social justice and people wanting to get involved and do things that could help eliminate some of the racism and some of the bigotry that is being portrayed on a daily basis. About a year in total. Now, I know that Juneteenth has been celebrated in Williamsport or the Williamsport area for a number of years. Will this be the first year that the Tri-County NAACP has been involved or has it always been involved and we haven't really been very aware of it or it's a big celebration this year? Well, kind of all those things. We have had several leaders in our community and several agencies in our community that have had prior Juneteenth celebrations that were wonderful And this year, however, this is the first time that the NAACP has solely put this on in conjunction with other organizers in the community. So it's really a big deal because it's probably one of the biggest collaborative efforts that we've had thus far. And so the NAACP is claiming that it is our first annual It's our first annual, so what we want to do is make this a tradition and an annual celebration moving forward. Can you explain what Juneteenth is? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Juneteenth, I, I put it real simply, Juneteenth is equivalent to Fourth of July for Black Americans. You know, it was really when Black Americans were officially, officially, 
granted freedom. However, the ironic part about that is that it was granted two years prior to it reaching the far stretches of, of Galveston, Texas. That's when it really became official, but it actually occurred two years prior, but it just hadn't reached that far south. So, you know, when people realized after years of servitude that they were free, the celebration that erupted was just uncontainable. Not only did they celebrate joyously in, in the town square or wherever they chose to do it, but there were many of people in the community who helped support it as well. So, you know, it's it's a very important celebration. It's a very important homage that we pay to our ancestors and to people who were in servitude one day and free in next, well, two years after it was proclaimed that they should be free. So, But if they'd only just found out, then it must have felt as if they were in servitude one day and suddenly free the next. Absolutely. I, I keep trying to imagine what that felt like, what that experience could have been like, you know what I mean? It, it's so hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom being in servitude for one thing, but then to to be prisoner one day and free the next, it's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Especially if you were an older person born into slavery uh. and then... And then you're older and suddenly you're free. It must have taken... Yes. I can't imagine the the overwhelming emotional impact that that would have had. Yeah, you, just you saying that gave me a flash of all the elders that I have ever known in my life and probably some elders that just pushed themselves on the scene so that I could have a visual. It's it's just remarkable to, to understand that, that we're on the shoulders, on the bones of, of ancestors. It's just remarkable. So it was celebrated at first in Galveston, Texas, and then did it just spread across the country? How did that happen? Well, I think that, you know, one of the main issues that continues to occur in our communities is that we tend to be in pockets or in really densely populated areas. So it's hard for people to communicate, especially back in the day before technology and all that. So our churches were fundamental in carrying on these traditions. And so pockets of celebrations were happening all over the country. And that's why for this year, it's really, really important that we focus on making this a national holiday a recognizable national holiday. So on Saturday, June 19th, we will be celebrating Juneteenth in Williamsport. Where does the day begin? You're going to begin the day with something that is, when I read about it, was so moving uh, at the cemetery on Freedom Road at 9 a.m. Would you talk about that, please, Melody? Absolutely. Once again, a, a black man saw the injustice, even in the North, even here in Williamsport, of black bodies that served in the war not even being properly buried in other white cemeteries. So, you know, he brought this plot of land to make sure that black soldiers were honored. And so I think it's nine or ten black soldiers are buried there. 
and it was also the area where the passage for the Underground Railroad, a part of it occurred. So it's a very sacred place. It's a very hollowed place. And so we decided to, to begin there and do a peaceful walk from there to Brandon Park, where all the festivities will be. So it's a day of celebration, but it's also a day of homage. It's a day of honor. It's a day of respect. It's a day of elevating our vibration of love and healing. So we we really, really wanted to make sure that we tied all that in and it not just be about having a good time, but us remembering, you know, those people who have gone before us and who who have paved the way for us to remember them. And then you will be holding a peace walk to Brandon Park. And then at 10.30 a.m. you will have a prayer and the singing of the Black National Anthem, followed by greetings from Williamsport Mayor Derek Slaughter. And then you have an exciting speaker, a keynote speaker. Oh, yes, yes. The the famed Adrian Miller, also known as the Soul Food Scholar. What a phenomenal human being. He is a food historian, and he is going to grace us with his presence. And he's also going to be signing several of his books for members of our community. So it's it's going to be awesome. If you have not seen the Netflix series High on the Hog, please do yourself the service of seeing it because it is really a great series. It's a four-part docu-series, and Adrian Miller is one of the famed historians that is featured in that docu-series. And then after that, it sounds as if the day is just going to break out into a beautiful celebration. <laughs> Yes, but prior to the breakout of the beautiful celebration, we want to honor. There are nine people in our community that we chose out of about 50 that we wanted to honor, that have poured into our community, poured into individuals, and we wanted to let them know that their service and their sacrifice and their commitment to improving people and lives didn't go unnoticed. So we're going to honor them as well. And then we're going to have a healing and drum circle. And then the celebration for open mic, line dancing, all the good stuff. But in the meantime, and simultaneously, there will be vendors and exhibits and things that people can be involved with while all the festivities are going on. I'm glad you see this vision because from the day that I was given this vision, I just seen a, a swarm of colors and people laughing and people crying, but joyfully just people sharing one another brotherly love, sisterly love, you know, agape and colorful, just colorful and exuberant. Now, if people are interested in joining in, uh, what can they do? Do they just show up? Do they need to do anything? No, all are welcome. I just want to make it understood that we are celebrating who we are, but that does not mean that you are not welcome. You are absolutely welcome. You know, we cannot celebrate who we are without acknowledging where we've been. So, you know, come and join us because everyone needs healing at this point. Everyone needs 
their vibration of love lifted, elevated. So we want to hold that space as sacred, as hallowed, as we lift the vibration of love and healing. That's that's the whole purpose. We have been in that part almost daily, staying in prayers and, and walking that ground and visualizing just the sheer joy and the fun and the love that's gonna that's gonna happen that day. So we're holding that space for that. We we also had to make sure that we cancel the energy that was there prior to us. And, and I, I think you know about that. Last year, neo-Nazis marched through there. The, the very next day, we, we assembled and, and canceled that energy, too, you know, and just prayed over the grounds because it's an important landmark as well. And that's what we have to do. You know, we have to stand together. We're not going to change everybody's mind and not everybody's going to get it and not everybody's going to care. We understand that. And and we're not asking for preferential treatment or any of that. We're just, you know, we just want to be seen as human, as equal, as a citizen. So that's that's why we we need this time. We need this space to just celebrate, celebrate all the things that we've travailed and all the things that are yet that we hope for. We're still trying to strive for a more perfect union. You know, we, we want to be a part of that conversation and how that can happen. So we're open and available, and, and we want this. We want it for not only our small community or the tri-county communities, but we want it for, for our country. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free Melody Carter-Shaw, president of the Lycoming Tri-County NAACP, speaking with WVIA's Fiona Powell about the regional Juneteenth observation in Williamsport tomorrow, June 19th, celebrating who we are. That's the title. The event will get underway at the cemetery on Freedom Road at 9 a.m., the fallen soldiers who are buried there will be acknowledged. They'll hold a peace walk to Brandon Park. The celebration at Brandon Park will start at 10.30 a.m. And the keynote address will be offered by Adrian Miller, coming in from Colorado, and he'll speak at 11.30. And for more information on the day, naacp wordpress.com N-A-A-C-P tricounty.wordpress.com Saturday, that's tomorrow, beginning at the cemetery on Freedom Road and the ceremony getting underway in Brandon Park at 10.30. Free at last, free at last. As we've just heard, author Adrian Miller, he is an award-winning culinary historian from Colorado, 
and he will be in Brandon Park at 11.30 tomorrow morning to present the keynote address. Miller cites a gospel tune, Welcome Tables, when he considers the way partaking of food can have a social, cultural impact in our lives. He writes, there has to be what I call welcome tables, referring to the gospel song, where we create spaces for people of different perspectives to come and discuss really tough things. Some may completely disagree, but people need to come together, and no one has the moral high ground. Words of Adrian Miller in the Huffington Post. WVIA's Fiona Powell had a chance to speak by phone with Adrian Miller before his talk tomorrow in Williamsport. Could you just tell us an idea of the relationship and the importance of barbecue to the African-American community? Yeah, so barbecue is a very important part of African-American food traditions. And barbecue dates back to the, the days of slavery. So old school barbecue was this, digging a trench, filling it with hardwood burning coals, and cooking whole animals that were often butterflied with a couple of poles stuck in the sides. And then a sauce of vinegar and red pepper was applied throughout the cooking process. So old school barbecue was very labor intensive. And given the racial dynamics of the time, dynamics of the time, when, when a barbecue of any size, especially a large one, enslaved African-Americans were involved in every step of the process. The prep work, the cooking, the serving, and even after all the eating was done, entertaining whites who were attending these barbecues. So it was a black, in many ways, it was a black experience from beginning to end. Where did barbecue come from? I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the European style cooking a whole animal on a spit. And this has been a certainly a tradition in Britain for, for centuries and centuries and often part of a large celebration and it is labor intensive. The one I know about happens in in Somerset in England where it takes a couple of days and it's a whole beast. It takes a couple of days and by the time the women get into town, the men are completely drunk, but the food is gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So barbecue, what we call Southern barbecue, this kind of pit barbecue that I just described, I argue is Native American in foundation. And so it's really what the Europeans who colonized the American South, what they encountered the American Indians or Native Americans doing, and then grafting on their European kind of quicker grilling techniques. And then soon afterwards, enslaved Africans get thrown into the mix as well. So I think the combination of those three cultures European, Native American, and West African, the culinary traditions and techniques are combined in a way that puts us on the road to, to creating what we can now call Southern Pit Barbecue. So yeah, I think that the whole trench method was what, what Europeans saw, and then they figured out ways to kind of add their own sensibilities of cooking meat to that process. So they weren't doing a spit necessarily, but the idea was to butterfly the animals and stick poles in them and then have somebody flip that. And what about the, the seasonings and, and all, because that's really the flavor of barbecue, isn't it? Which has to be quintessentially American. Yeah, so the interesting thing is, you know, early barbecue was fairly standardized. So in terms of flavoring it, it was just a concoction of vinegar and red pepper flakes that what became like the earliest sauce. So it was mopped on during the cooking process. 
and kept the meat moist all throughout it. And so that was the earliest seasoning. Now, there are a lot of articles talking about barbecue being too spicy. And I think it's because just a lot of that red pepper and vinegar sauce was added during the cooking process. But that was an African-American culinary signature, the idea of spicy, what some people call high seasoning, which remember, in the 18th and 19th century, that was considered low class because the idea was that food should be balanced. It should have subtlety. So to get something that smacks your tongue, right, wakes you up, that was considered low class. And then over time, marinades, spice rubs, and other things get added to barbecue. My sense, though, is that that, you don't really see that until the 20th century. Did Africans bring this over with them from Africa, the, the seasoning? Or did they create it when they were enslaved to, to enhance their diet? Yeah, so it's a very interesting story. Glad you asked that. So there, there certainly was the use of what they called warming spices in West African food before European contact. So these were things like ginger, cardamom. Um, there's a native pepper called melagetta pepper in West Africa. And they also have a thing called grains of paradise. And so those were used. And so when the capsicum peppers of South America made their way into West Africa and got introduced, you know, the West African tongue was hardwired to accept these peppers and they went crazy for them. So in much the way that tomatoes have transformed Italian food, you know, the introduction of these hot chilies from South America were embraced, widely embraced in West African food. So a lot of it depends on when the West Africans get exposed to it and come over, but there was certainly a tradition of, of highly spiced food. And so being introduced to a sauce of vinegar and red pepper flakes would have been something in the West African cook's wheelhouse because they were used to spicy food anyway. When I first encountered barbecue, it was in the South. It was a Southern thing. And I yep. think the South still does it really rather well. Yeah, so that's the thing. And that's, that's one of the reasons why African-Americans are so associated with barbecue is because it was considered a Southern thing. And, you know, if you ask a lot of people, especially of a certain age, I would argue anybody over 40, if you ask them where they got their first taste of barbecue, there's a high probability they would say from someplace that was prepared by an African-American. Because in a lot of towns, uh, there may only be one or two barbecue joints, and you know one was apt to be owned by an African-American man, even in places that weren't ter- you know, didn't have a large black population. So you know how almost every city has, especially if you go to these really small towns, right? They usually have a Chinese place and a Mexican place, and an Italian place. And so it was like that for barbecue. And there was a conventional wisdom that barbecue is good, and the best stuff is usually made by African Americans. Right. My first barbecue was in North Carolina, served Mm -hmm. to me by an African American, (laughs) in an African American business. See? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And so that's why it's so weird to me to have all of this barbecue storytelling happening today where African Americans aren't even mentioned. Because it really is an African-American story. Yeah. Remind us of the three books that, that you have written and what they are about. Sure. So my first book is Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, published by the University of North Carolina Press. All my books are. And that book is really just a history of soul food told through a meal. So I, I break down the basic meal and I, I write a chapter about every part of the meal and I explain what it is how it gets on the soul food plate, what it means for the culture. So very quickly, the, the meal that I have in that book is fried chicken, fried catfish, and chitlins, which are pig intestines, as the entrees, 
greens, black eyed peas, candy jams, and macaroni and cheese as the sides. Wrote a chapter about cornbread, wrote a chapter about red drink, because I believe red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. And then I wrote a chapter about four desserts because I couldn't settle on one. So peach cobbler, banana pudding, pound cake, and sweet potato pie. And then my uh, next book is The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. And that's really a collective biography of the African-Americans who have cooked for our first families. And I, through my research, have identified 150 African-Americans who have cooked since the days of Washington. So every president has had an African-American cooking for them in some capacity. And then my uh, latest book is Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue, which is really a celebration of African-American barbecue culture and a restoration of African-Americans, the America's barbecue narrative. That's wonderful. And you will be speaking at Juneteenth in uh, Brandon Park on Saturday, and you're going to be the keynote speaker. What will you be talking about? Will you be talking just about barbecue? Uh, No. So I think I'm going to expand it and talk about various African-American food traditions and how they connect to Juneteenth and then pivot and just show the kind of the broader role that all of us play in, in bringing about social justice and how food can help us to achieve some of those goals. So it's really just to to lay out the story of African-American food as one of creativity, resiliency, and, and triumph, and then just to remind people, hey, the work's not done, that none of us are free until we're all free. And of course, there's no better way of uh, of meeting and talking than sitting over a terrific meal, perhaps, especially barbecue. Yeah, absolutely. As long as the food tastes good, you know. But <laughs> even when it doesn't, there is something about sitting down at the table and communing with other human beings because it helps us recognize their humanity. We can learn something from each other. And cooking is an act of love. When somebody cooks for you, they're saying they care about your survival. That's why they're trying to sustain you. Even if the food is straight nasty, the fact that somebody went through that act is meaningful. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. One of this morning, so Award-winning culinary historian Adrian Miller speaking with WVIA's Fiona Powell before his talk tomorrow in Brandon Park in Williamsport at 11.30 a.m. as part of the Juneteenth celebration. And he will talk not just about his books and barbecue, but the larger social and cultural implications of what it means to eat and break bread together. That's Adrian Miller, and he's part of the Juneteenth celebration in Brandon Park tomorrow, and it's hosted by the Lycoming Tri-County NAACP and Partners. For more information on the web, naacptricounty.wordpress.com, naacptricounty.wordpress.com. Free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Free at last, free at last.